Hello and welcome back to another episode of Over the Bridge Podcast. Um, it's been cool being able to do this podcast still in this virtual world, you know. At the, f- the start, I know that we thought that it wouldn't be possible, but it's fun still getting to have these chats with each other and also hopefully provide some interesting conversation for you guys, our listeners at home or wherever you are in the world. Um, at time of recording, for me, it's Sunday morning and it's Father's Day. So happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Um, I think I'm a father because I've now got two kittens. So happy Father's Day to myself. Uh, we've got everyone, well, not Tom, but we've got Patrick and Kwaku and a special guest with us in a moment who's going to introduce themselves. But Patrick, Kwaku, how are you guys doing, man? Yeah, I'm good. It's um, also Sunday for me as well. Um, it's also Father's Day. <laughs> um, yeah, all good. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers that are listening, fathers that are present uh, and nurturing to their kids. Happy Father's Day. Yeah, all good, man. All good. Uh, I'm not a father that I know of, but I'm wow. a godfather. <laughs> um so yeah, yeah i'm a godfather so i haven't heard anything from my goddaughter yet so ouch yeah that's that's, that's a bit painful um <laughs> but yeah shout, shout out all the fathers shout out my dad uh i need to chat to him more <laughs> but yeah happy days man sunday chilled um had a nice start to the weekend so nice. yeah your dad's in ghana now right yeah exactly which is even more reason why i should like yeah, try and chat to him more. But you know, it's like kind of out of sight, out of mind sometimes. But I'm I'm trying to improve that because, uh, yeah, yeah, is is always important to maintain that that relationship, especially when I'm great. Like I'm lucky enough where I do have, um, you know, my dad present throughout my life and all that. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, happy Father's Day to my dad. I'm gonna go see him later, you know. But he's a funny one. I asked him what he wanted to do today, and he just said nothing. And I don't know if that's, you know, when people say nothing, meaning, oh, I'm looking forward to whatever you have planned and I have nothing planned. Or if it was a nothing from, I actually don't want to do anything perspective. So I guess I'll find that out later, man. Um, Henk, welcome. Welcome to our guest, Henk. Henk, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Happy Father's Day uh, to my own dad, who's a legend, older brother, who's also a legend and also a police officer. And uh, my father-in-law, who's also a legend, really, really get on well with him. Um, and I myself, I'm I'm a good father, but um, my godson is, I think he's about two and a half. So, um, <laughs> so uh, I won't be getting messages from him. But um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's a, it's a good day, good day to think about fatherhood and. Um, and the good people that have influenced us all, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's a powerful day. And um, you mentioned in there your intro, you said my brother, who's also a police officer. We actually haven't yeah. introduced you properly yet. Um, <laughs> do you mind just telling us a little bit about who you are, what you do, yeah. and yeah. how you are our guest today on this podcast? Yeah, so my full name is Ahenkara Bediarko. Ahenkara, my first name, hence my nickname, Hank Bediarko. My surname. So at work, I'm known as Beds, short and formed of my surname. And I am a police officer. Uh, I'm black, being African heritage, family from Ghana, but born in London. Um, I'm a detective inspector in the modern slavery and child exploitation unit in the Met Police. So that means I'm a specialist senior detective. 
and um, um, I came, well, we had a conversation below and um, it was just, the current situation, I just wanted to sort of have a conversation with you guys. Um, oh, I should say, I'm also a student at Cambridge University, so I'm doing applied criminology and police management, master's degree. Um, and just listening to your podcast as what I describe black intellectuals having high level discussions, just wanted to sort of open or have a discussion with you guys about what being black means and also my perspective as a black police officer, as a Londoner, um, and as sort of a middle-aged person, I'm 35, what that means for me, perhaps to provide an insight to people who are looking at the police, um, but also just have that conversation and keep that conversation going because we need to, we need to talk about race, ethnicity, background, colour, whatever term people uh, ascribe to it. We need to have that conversation. And that's what's become apparent to me um, now that Black Lives Matter is firmly on the agenda. Um, but also for me, perhaps a, a chance to express where I sit um, when I look at Black Lives Matter and what that means for me. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's how I've ended up here. Cool, man. Cool. <laughs> that was a good intro. Um, cool. So, I actually had um, yeah, a question for you, I, I yeah. think, pretty much off the bat. Um, so, what is your position on um, the Black Lives Matter movement? Um, obviously, it's been going on for a long time, mm. um, since about 2014. Uh, mm. And it's only really now in 2020 that um, it's no longer a sort of radical position, a radical phrase to use. Mm. You know, you see like brands and everybody, you know, the Premier League, um, you know, when I log on to Call of Duty, well, a couple of weeks ago when I was logging on to Call of Duty, you have it there on the front page. Like that was sort mm. of unthinkable even a year ago. Um, so yeah, what what is your position on Black Lives Matter? And what, what was it like, you know, before, you know, um, mm. is it, is it a, has there been a recent change or and 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 how does that kind of um sit with you as as as, as a policeman uh, in the mm. uk mm. Mm. so i absolutely support the principle behind black lives matter the statement the focus on black people specifically within the context of the relationship between black people and the state the institution and the police um, and and in the UK. So it started in America, as we know, um, as um, a sort of response to what we dis or what people describe as police brutality um, and has evolved into a discussion about the relationship between black people in the state and society. So I absolutely support the notion that there is mass disproportionality mass inequality um, and specifically I support the notion that this is something that has been inherited through many generations from the days of slavery and that that has never been properly addressed particularly in the United Kingdom I think the issues that are to be addressed are different from America I think the questions for the police are different from America 
but I don't, I'm not quick to distance ourselves from America. I think there are similarities that make us need to stop and think. What I would say is that the murder of George Floyd is what has made me really reassess my position on Black Lives Matter specifically. So when it first started, I didn't really take that much notice because at that point I was in the space of American policing is so different from UK policing Mm. that what is happening in America isn't as relevant to us in the UK. So that's when it first started, what, five five years ago? Um, Then what's interesting, as you know, I started my further education and, and just prior to that, I had a kind of revelation about the situation in the United Kingdom and the mass disproportionality that exists. And the more, and so when I started at Cambridge, the more I started learning, the more it became evident. And I started thinking, hang on a minute, this country isn't, this country isn't fair. This country is not how a lot of people think it is. This country is not how I thought it was. Mm. Um, So prior to George Floyd in the last few weeks, I have been having various conversations with various people saying, you know, in a very, in a very neutral, non, non-confrontational way, are you aware of the mass disproportionality that exists within the United Kingdom? Are you aware of the disproportionality that exists within the state? And when we talk about policing, are disproportionate outcomes for black people? Mm. So that was the conversation. And, you know, it was, I thought it was quite an effective way of at least challenging people's views then then there was a a series of events so there was um the more recent ones that really shocked me so there was brianna taylor who was the emergency medical technician who was shot no no in fact there was one before that there was the lady who was shot by the officer who was called to do a welfare check by the neighbor so the neighbor hadn't seen her called the police and said i haven't seen my neighbor officer turns up sneaks around the house looks through the window, shoots the woman dead in her own house. And I thought that was in Fort, Fort Worth, Dallas. I, I, you know, that shocked me. I was like, what the hell? Um, and that was one of many incidents, primarily in America. Then uh, we had the EMT, Brianna Taylor, um, shot during a warrant, again by American police. Then we had Ahmad Arbery, uh, which has been described as a modern-day lynching, where he's chased down by... Uh, whether it's two or three individuals is a matter of debate, but three individuals, two armed, and they do it because they see him as a black person, suspect him of committing a crime, and he resists, and they effectively execute him. And then finally, George Floyd, um, which we don't need to go over the details. We all know, I'll say, I have not watched the video Mm. in in all its full... uh, detail just because I couldn't uh, but I read a transcript I've seen pictures and it's shocking Mm. Um, and you know weighs heavily on me just as it weighs heavily on many many people Um, so after that the uprising of protests globally um, is something that I welcome um, and I think it has demonstrated that there is a problem in the United Kingdom. Um, So that is how my viewpoint has evolved. I would say that um, 
my entire life, my viewpoint has been evolving. So I went to school with majority white people, one of the only few black people in the school, but being raised in the majority black church uh, and then going to a church that was multicultural, as in there was a lot of diversity. Um, and uh, that influenced my viewpoint in the sense of thinking um, I got used to operating in predominantly white spaces, mm. I would I would say. So I became very comfortable with that and I became comfortable with transferring from a white space to a black space to the point where it's only recently I've, I've, I've begun to deconstruct what that means for me. So then, um, so I went through college and then university, I went to City University, London did maths uh, for my bachelor's. And in that environment, it was predominantly Indian and Chinese. Again, very unusual um, situation, I think, for a black person to be in, being a minority, but of a different kind. And again, became comfortable operating um, as a as one of the only black people in that predominantly Asian space. Um, and then growing up in church, I had contact with many police officers. And I think I was naive as to the experience of most black people with the police. I was a homebody. I wasn't out and about. I didn't encounter the police very much. Um, there were a couple of incidents, but they were pretty neutral. Um, I was stopped and searched a couple of times, but uh, I think I've always had this intrinsic respect for authority. Um, and also the people that I knew as police officers meant that I interpreted those encounters in a particular way um then my older brother joined the police and then i followed him essentially in my final year of uni uh i had intended to become an investment banker um but then i decided and this is no offense to banking or bankers <laughs> because there are many ethical bankers but i i concluded that uh becoming a banker would be helping rich people get richer and that's not something I wanted to do. So I thought policing is a noble profession. Policing is out to help people. That that was my understanding. And so that's that's why I joined. Um, and then, you know, <laughs> the, the whole experience of joining the police, that's, that. I mean, we can talk about that a bit later, but um, I now recognise there was a process of, not indoctrination, institutionalization. There was a process of institutionalization um, where you're taught that you can't really question the way of doing things, particularly as a newcomer, and that you have to earn your place and that the primary way of earning your place and earning your voice is by undertaking certain actions to fit in. So one of them is making the tea or and coffee which sounds weird, but it's a ritual that exists in policing. Um, if you don't make the teas and coffees, you might be ostracized by your team. Um, wow. Um, so, you know, the, the, the culture is very strong um, in policing. And there's positive and negative aspects to it. So one of the positive aspects that I encountered uh, very early on, um, I, I, I haven't said that uh, I started off as a volunteer. So I started off as a volunteer special constable in Eltham no less, Elton being the place where Stephen Lawrence was murdered. So I couldn't have had a more racially charged introduction to policing. Um, and what was interesting 
there is that where I suffered racial abuse, members of the public, my colleagues were very quick to step in and defend me. So that was a quite a positive experience. Um, and I became used to the idea that I'd be singled out as a black person being visibly different. But going back to my point about the, str the strength of the culture and how it is not entirely negative, I remember sitting in the canteen at Greenwich Police Station, brand new, um, we, you know, we've got our food, and then something something happened on the radio. The thing about police radio is it takes a while to understand what is happening. So I didn't really understand what was happening. But basically, everyone dropped what they were doing and ran down into police cars. It didn't matter whose car you got in. Everyone's just bundling into police cars. Suddenly, we're all driving at ridiculous speeds. Um, and then as, you know, as things were unfolding, I realized that basically this officer some random officer somewhere who I don't know, he'd, he'd called for what we call urgent assistance. Mm. Urgent assistance is the most, um, well, it's, 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 the, it's the highest degree of um, response that you'll get from the police. And basically it's, I'm, 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 I'm in trouble, I need help now. So everyone makes their way to this person at speed until they say, I no longer need help. Um, and so that was an experience where I recognised that the police have a very strong culture, a very strong bond with each other. And when someone calls for help, it doesn't matter who they are or what they're doing, police officers will risk their lives to get there and help that person. Um, and that's actually necessary for police officers to survive in the hostile environment that is policing. What, that, what I've also witnessed is the same level of commitment to help people. And this is not necessarily obvious to people who aren't in the police, but the degree of commitment that people demonstrate to help people. And so just just yesterday, we know of an incident in Reading. Um, mm. So if we take the politicization of the reporting out of it, i.e., you know, it's very quick to say it's not related to Black Lives Matter, very quick to say the person was Libyan. Let's take that out of it and just look at the incident. An individual has gone around stabbing people. That person has been tackled to the ground by a police officer who probably had uh, a baton and a um, can of CS and potentially a taser, but they tackled that person to the ground. That's the level of commitment that we have in policing to protect people. Um, but all that said, what is apparent is that there are disproportionate responses and outcomes for people who are black. And that is an issue. And that is not immediately obvious to every police officer. Mm. So for me, it's really important when having conversations with police officers to recognize that commitment exists and recognize that actually I think the conversation should be centered on highlighting how inadvertently for the most for the most part police officers are trying to do the right thing but are there are disproportionate outcomes for black people wow um, yeah. yeah um Hank I mean that was that was really interesting actually is also I think for myself and maybe for some of our listeners not always a perspective that you hear um mm. particularly around you know 
often like I, I can speak for so many times when I've just been somewhere when something's kicking off and suddenly bare police cars just turn up like mm. almost all at the same time you know and you're like mm. wow how did so many people turn up for what from my perspective often looks like a small event but not mm. knowing what's going on behind the scenes is we need backup mm. everyone come now and that's sort of yeah. what's going on right um yeah. I want to talk a bit about like you said, for the most part, police are probably intending to do the right thing, which is about safety and keeping everyone mm-hmm. safe and et cetera. Mm-hmm. But then these disproportionate outcomes um, mm. and link it into what you were talking about before, about when you join the police at first, there's almost like mm. a, what did you say? Not brainwashing, use the novel word for institutionalization. Yeah. Can we talk about what what's yeah. going on there? Yeah. So by institutionalization, and it's not directly related to race. It's just a general notion that the people that know what they're talking about are the people who've been doing it the longest. So my first experience of this was I was in a car with two colleagues. One had 30 years experience, one had 20 years experience. Driving around Bexley, they stopped a vehicle. Both occupants were white. Young, Two white young lads Um Everything was in order. It's a short stop, uh, and these individuals were on their way. And I was like, "Why? Why did we stop that vehicle?" So I asked, "Why did we stop that vehicle?" And I was met with immediate defensiveness. And basically, they said, "It's it was a nice car um, with two young lads, and we've got a lot of car crime in this area, so we just wanted to check it wasn't stolen." That was effectively what they told me. But and I was like, "Okay, fair enough." Like. The police, so Section 163 of the Road Traffic Act, uh, which is a piece of legislation, gives the police the, the power to stop a vehicle. Uh, for, for Basically, they don't need the reason to do that. Mm. So legally, and, you know, that's contentious, and we can talk about that, that power because perhaps it needs amended. Um, but within the confines of the law, my understanding at the time, I was like, okay, fair enough. Like, you've justified it. However... What shocked me was the defensiveness. So I actually, my brother was already in the police for a number of years. So I asked him, you know, why? You know, this happened and I questioned it and they were so defensive. Why is that? And he said, you can't ask those kind of questions. Like that just upsets people. So he had already experienced that institutionalization of not questioning the status quo. Uh, And this idea that if you question it, you're somehow attacking what people have established as the way of doing things. So it's taken me a while to unpick that rationale and actually look at what we're doing. And now I question everything and I've been equipped to question it rigorously, you know, through my further studies. So what I'm saying is that it's not necessarily race related. It's a general position of the culture is um, we learn how to do things by doing it. It's only by experience you learn how to do things. And if you're new and you're questioning stuff, you, do, you can't question it because you don't know what you're talking about. First, learn how to police and then you can question it. That's, um, that, that, um, yeah, that description and um, explanation that you made, Hank, um, yeah, it, it it is a bit troubling for me, um, and it actually mm. sort of feeds into 
what I was going to ask um, off the back of um, the first question that I asked, because um, you mentioned um, how um, policing is about, um, you know, protecting and, and serving a community. Mm. And one of the things that I've been um, thinking about for the last couple of years, few years, um, I mean, if, I mean, the thought sort of first came to me looking at the way, you know, the US police is, but mm. uh, just... I feel like this sort of applies um, to, to really all policing in, in the Western world. And it's that mm. um, when people describe the police as protecting and serving their communi community, I think they missed the mark. I think what the police um, actually is, um, is um, an instrument for the state. So they mm. are um, enforcing the will of the state. Now, at times mm. that may overlap with you know the common good i.e protecting people i mean most of the time you would you could argue that's what it does you know the state doesn't mm. want anarchy they don't want people mm. running around killing people but when it comes when the push comes to shove and you have a situation where it's um how do we protect the status quo and how do we protect the state mm. versus mm. how do we protect human lives and human beings it's mm. all deference is always towards the former we always protect the status quo and for me um your um, explanation about how um, you know the, the, the process of institutionalization, um, mm. I think, is sort of clear evidence for that. Because mm. I mean, what you what you asked um, your your um, I guess it was your superior at the time is a perfectly reasonable question, and there mm -hmm. shouldn't be any reason for them to be defensive. Um, mm -hmm. There shouldn't there shouldn't really be a culture of you're not supposed to ask questions until you've been in the police force long enough, mm. um, because to me that is kind of that to me that's that has the whole hallmarks of a cult in the same mm. way that you know in a, in a religious space you would you'd you'd feel quite uncomfortable if people um you know got upset with you for asking reasonable questions um mm. for somebody that is new to um to that faith do you see what i mean mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. i'm not mm -hmm. saying that that doesn't happen that happens all the time but that is something that is critiqued in um you know religious faith spaces you know you're not allowed mm. to ask questions well, why not? And I feel like, yeah, that is the exact same thing that we're we're sort of seeing here with um, this process of institutionalization that you're talking about. Um, mm. But yeah, I guess yeah. In short, what I'm trying to say is, that for me, as far as I'm concerned, um, the police are a tool, an instrument of the state to protect the mm. status quo. Um, protecting and serving the community is something that is a byproduct of that, or it's secondary. Um, mm. the, 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 the primary thing is um, enforcing the will of the state. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting point, and I generally agree with you. So what we have is what is the mission statement of the police and how the police operate in practice. So that's the tension between the two worlds that you have described. And what I would say before I go into that specific thing is that in terms of institutionalization it's an informal power structure that exists that is slowly being broken down um, by certain policies that have been brought in so one is uh, direct entry at various ranks so you can enter as a superintendent or you can enter as an inspector directly from other uh, organizations or institutions. The idea being that you will challenge perhaps the status quo um, and bring fresh ideas. We've also got direct entry detectives. So 
Um, when I joined, you had to be a uniform officer before you could become a detective. Now you can join directly as a detective. Again, um, that 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 means that when you become a detective, you've been through a, a shorter period of training, so therefore less institutionalization. What also I have seen is that there's a change in general culture among new recruits who are more willing to ask questions. And where before questioning would have been an absolute challenge of authority, now I can see, so myself as, as a reasonably senior person and other senior people can see that actually there needs to be more rationale provided to officers when we're saying go and do A, B and C. So there is a there is some change that is taking place. Whether that change is fast enough, rapid enough, effective enough, is a question for the public, really, um, to feed back to the police. Then to come to your point around being an instrument of a, of the state, yes, absolutely. I think you're right. I think that's how the police, in effect, <coughs> oh, excuse me, in effect, the policing actions in effect, do that. The mission statement of the police, so so Robert Peel, who's the person who established the modern police service, um, we, and we call it a service now, in an, in an attempt to uh, amplify the idea that the police are here to serve, police service as, to, as opposed to a police force. So he said, uh, the police are the public and the public are the police. Um, and he made a number of other statements. The idea being that the police are, and this is my interpretation of it, the police are individuals who, whom society has appointed to a particular position of enhanced power to look after the welfare of everybody. Um, so that is my romantic notion of policing. I, I fully recognize, however, that the police are given power by the state through laws and so the state directs police and activity um, and when we look at the three branches of the state so the executive the government who are the elected government um, literally governed by passing law that law is then debated in the, the, legis um, the um, legis legislature I should say I've got dyslexia, so sometimes I struggle with pronunciation of certain words. Anyway, Parliament, the legislature, debates that um, debates that law, goes to the House of Lords, back and forth, then it comes into law. So if it's a criminal law that the government has instituted, the police will respond directly by enforcing that law. So that's where we have COVID. <clears throat> the COVID law, for example, brand new law. It, it has directed police activity by providing a law. Um, then finally, the judiciary um, further interpret that law in minutia in specific cases uh, by refer, and, and this is the principle in law, um, that they will refer to what the legislature intended when they brought that law into being. So what I've described is exactly what you're talking about the police are here as an arm of the state to enforce the law um, and the state governs by the rule of law. And yes, um, one of the ideas, we call it the Queen's Peace, maintaining law and order, keep or 
as I've heard some some people describe it in a soft in softer terms, keeping everyone safe. Um, the idea that our social order needs to be maintained and the police are here to do that. So then there are a number of questions for me that cause me to agree with you in the sense of I recently found out that Sir Robert Peel uh, submitted a petition to oppose the abolition of slavery. And he did that on economic grounds because he was worried about the cotton trade. So when Sir Robert Peel spoke about the police are the public and the public are the police, who was he referring to as the public? And how, how has that been inherited as our understanding of who we police for? How has that been inherited, interpreted generations later? So, yeah, I think there is a inherent disproportionality from the start. Now, when I read that statement by Sir Robert Peel, not knowing the context, I assume everyone is included in that. And I guarantee that the majority of police officers will think the same thing. But then there is this system of doing things that we have inherited. Um, and also, we have to talk about class. It's not just about race. So this is one of the, I feel, one of the main differences between the UK and United States. We have a strong class system. How does that affect how we police? So, for example, and I was having this debate some years ago, um, just about some of our policies. So we have a public interest test. Is it in the public interest to commence an investigation? Is it in the public interest to prosecute someone? So where you have low level theft, often it's not in the public interest because of the cost of prosecution. Um, so there was, there was an incident where uh, a rich businessman had a £100,000 watch stolen from his hotel room and I was investigating this. And I was like, okay, this is a high value theft because it's a hundred thousand pounds. So I was trying to think, how are we going to investigate this? What what resources are we going to apply? I was talking with another colleague, and I was like, hang on a minute, it's a this you know, it's um, it's an expensive watch, but this guy, like, he's like a he's like a billionaire. Mm. He's not going to miss this watch. Mm. And meanwhile, um, we someone so a homeless person might have a ten pound watch that they, is then stolen off them and we might not investigate it because it was only £10 and I was having this conversation with someone else and I was like flipping it like the whole way of thinking here disadvantages the poor person because our policy uh, assigns value monetary value or, or monetary value is a really important consideration in how we decide we investigate things um, so when it comes to race, the fact that race correlates with poverty, deprivation, class, social status means that inevitably there will be disproportionate outcomes for black people. Um, and so that's the kind of nuance that is really important in this conversation. It's not helpful. And I know one of the questions is about institutional racism. My, my view is it's not helpful, specifically with the police, to um, continually talk about institutional racism. It's probably more helpful to talk about systemic racism of the whole country. And I say that because police have been looking at racism for a long time. So 
the idea that police officers are racist is not a new one. Um, are police officers racist? I I would I would say that the majority of people that I've worked with, I don't think they have racist thoughts, i.e. I do not like a black person and so I'm gonna take a specific action. Are there is there disproportionality that exists within the system that is inadvertently perpetuated by police? Absolutely yes. So I think the whole system needs addressing and policing forms part of that. Mm, um, yeah. I, I went beyond what you said. Um, but yeah, I essentially agree with you. The police is the arm of the state. The issue is with our whole system of doing things. And that's why there are disproportionate outcomes perpetrated by the police. There's that's some, my view. Thank you. There's something really, really interesting there about sort of the link that's made from this ideological um, thing of, well, in society, there's the idea that someone is better than someone else, right? Whether that's a rich mm. person's worth more than a poor person or a white mm. person is more valued than a black person. That's an idea mm. that exists. Um, that idea is embedded in our law and our legislature and sort of therefore mm. inadvertently enacted upon by certain members of the police force, right? Where, um, mm. as you mentioned, they might not be acting as a racist person, but have inherited this idea that this is just how we act. These are people we survey. These are people that we stop. These are people that we watch, right? Whether that mm. working class people or black people, or however that plays out, that's the sort mm. of culture in which we're brought up in mm. uh, within the force. Um, on that though, as you know, you kind of talked about it. One of the questions from our members is, which you've kind of touched on is, are police told to view black people as more dangerous? And I think we've sort mm. of begun unpacking that. But then they went on to ask, well, is there an inherent bias from the training um, yeah. perspective? So when you join the police force, I suppose is what they're asking, mm. do you recognise any sort of inherent bias in the mechanisms and functions of how they train you to be a police officer? Mm. So I would say my training... Um was there was no when i when i cast my mind back there was no inherent bias in the training other than the reasonable person test so there might be other inherent biases that i've not uh, unpacked yet or deconstructed but there is one thing uh that is inherently biased in my view that's the what we call the reasonable person test so in law there's the word reasonable. So before an officer can stop and search or in order to stop and search, they must form reasonable grounds to suspect that someone is in possession of certain items. To arrest someone, an officer must form reasonable grounds to suspect that an offence has been committed, about to be committed, etc., etc. Um, um, and when you come to senior officers, so when I was a custody sergeant, um, officers would present their people that they've arrested to me and give me the grounds of the arrest and I would have to form reasonable grounds to believe that their detention was necessary at the police station and then as an inspector um, for example if I'm authorizing a warrant to search someone's house after they've been arrested I need to form reasonable grounds to believe that there is evidence in that person's house 
So you see that this word reasonable is referred to repeatedly in law. The question is, what is reasonable? So the test that we're given of reasonableness is the uh, is the reasonable person test. What would the average person think? Would they think that this thing is reasonable? And the, what, the way that we're taught to think of it is uh, the man on the Clapham omnibus. Uh, so you might you might know what an omnibus is. You might not. An omnibus being a mode of transport, which is effectively um, a bus that was drawn that was horse drawn about a hundred years ago. So this man on the Clapham omnibus um, is is a man. That's the first that's the first issue with that. So the reasonable person test is the opinion of a man, and also he is invariably white. So this hypothetical man's opinion and he's going to be from a certain background so this hypothetical man's opinion is what i have to think about when i think about what is reasonable so i think that's inherently biased um because with the process of institutionalization i started off questioning what was reasonable in the story that i that i gave and i have to say this happened in 2007 uh that that story about the, the stock um, so in my head, I was forming a view of what is reasonable. And then that view was informed by the response of my colleagues. Um, so the combination of being told the command on the Clapham omnibus's opinion in combination with that of my colleagues then forms what I think is reasonable. But then I've been asking recently, are we taking into account the opinions of everybody? Because if I went down into somewhere like Brixton and I found 10 black people um, and asked them, what do you think is reasonable for the police to do? Mm. What would they tell me? And how would that affect my view of what is reasonable? Have we, are we taking those views into account are we applying the same power or the same weight into those views? And some of it is, is some of this analysis is structural. So one of the issues we might have is when we look at an area, we look at it at a macro scale. So I might look at Lambeth and I might have a survey that's conducted over Lambeth. And we know that Lambeth has many different parts to it, um, Brixton being one of them. Um, so it can appear to a senior commander that things are going well because overall in Lambeth, you know, people support what the police are doing. But then when we look at um, smaller pockets, so you go to certain places in Lambeth, what is their view of the police and why is it that and what do they think is reasonable for the police to do? And you know what, that's, that's difficult. I think that's difficult as a police officer to consider because um, we're always balancing the different views of different people. So if we come back to Black Lives Matter protests, there is a lot of people that are absolutely furious with the police for allowing this to take place. Um, absolutely furious. Um, so as a senior commander, it's really, it's really hard to walk that line between, well, there's clear anger that people want to express and want change. And then there's, on the other hand, a group of people that are saying, yeah, but the law is this. 
you should be enforcing the law as police. That's what we expect. And so then that system of inequality may be perpetuated because is it the majority uh, who have a particular view around the protest and the minority that want to protest? Um, yeah, it's interesting. Mm. And I I'm, guess... not, I'm not sure if that answers your question. I hope it does. No, no, I think that's really interesting thinking that I'd never actually heard about the man on the Clapham omnibus um, and particularly mm. this idea of, well, whose perspective are we taught from anyway, right? Whether that's exactly. training in the police force or training in school, like which curriculum are we reading? Um, whose opinion gets to be right, I think is a really interesting one. Um, we You spoke yeah. a little bit there. One of the things that I want to touch on is you said, if I was to go down into Brixton and find 10 black people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a question from one of our listeners, which I actually have personally always been curious about this, about quotas. Um, yeah. I want to, I don't know the exact words. Let me try to find them. But essentially, one of our listeners asks, um, I'd like to know more about the targets that police have. For example, how many arrests do they have to make within a particular amount of time? Is yep. there such a thing? Um, yeah, so <laughs> there's been there's a bit of there's been a bit of flip flopping through the years on this. When I joined, uh, and I have to refer to when I joined because um, I'm not a frontline officer. I don't really arrest people anymore. Um, but when I joined, one of my targets was five arrests a month. Um, so I had to to and it was part of my development, I had to make five arrests in a month. Um, I had to do a number of stop and searches in a month. The idea being that, so I was working in Lewisham, the idea being that there will be a sufficient incidence for me to generate the grounds required for a lawful stop and search or lawful arrest. Um, Now, there is an issue there because quotas and targets inevitably can lead to perverse outcomes. But the problem is, how does how does a manager ensure that their officer is actually doing work? And so we have a disproportionate amount of work or disproportionality between officers where some officers work really hard and some don't. Um, and so how do you get the people who are not contributing and not working <clears throat> how do you measure their performance hey so let me ask quickly oh yeah go on sorry um i just wanted to know quickly um did you have any other targets any other quotas with regards to um sort of uh, relations with the public um apart from like a number of arrests like did you have like a quota for say you know um i don't know um de-escalating you know like a, a situation like a, a dangerous situation or like yeah. uh, intervening in like a domestic violence dispute, anything like that, or is it just um, arrests? Yeah, that's a really good question because actually I think the only other target was crime reports. Um, that's a really good question, actually, and I'd not thought of it in that in those terms. Because yeah, the reason I, 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 that I asked that question, I, I don't know, maybe it's um, quite clear now, but um, it's to me, it seems problematic that, you know, the measure of um, policing, and this is probably mm. why, you know, a lot of people now are calling for 
you know, police abolition or defunding mm, or complete destruction mm, mm, of the police is because of the mm, way we 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 um conceptualize policing in that mm, it's fighting crime and yeah. um, my emphasis on the word fighting rather mm, than being a service to the community. Do you see what I mean? Mm, yeah, absolutely. And you know what? That's that's sort of triggered something in my mind. And it and I'll come back to the culture of what is seen as policing by police officers. And you have a tension between officers who, I mean, if I was to divide it simply, and this is maybe an oversimplification, but helpful, there are some officers who are suspect focused, offender focused. They, you know, the language they use is, I like to catch the bad guys. There are some officers who are victim focused and the language they use is, I like to help people. So I find my I found myself falling into the victim focus. It, I mean that's a as I say that is a um, that's an oversimplification, but it kind of goes to the point that I think you're making around how our targets driving policing activity and where the targets are these hard um, actions that police take punitive actions stop and search arrests even crime reports. Um, then that 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 then sends a signal of what policing actually is. So perhaps there's a question of how do we measure, as you described, the escalation? Because there is no measurement. There is no way other than reporting it or writing it down to say there was this incident and I de-escalated it. Unless it's exceptional, mm. as far as I'm aware, that's the end of the matter. Um, Whereas the thing, the thing, the thing with arrests and stop and searches is that they are counted, they are counted anyway, regardless of the outcome. So there already exists a measure that can be used. But then, the thing is, with with that, Hank, um, I would argue mm-hmm. that um, you know, recording um, a, a, you know, a situation of like de- de-escalation or intervening uh, mm. domestic violence. That, I mm. mean, that that in itself is, you know, you can that's a unit of measurement. You can count that as, you know, a single situation in the same way that you can count mm. a single arrest. I just think that um, because mm. the focus has been on fighting crime and making arrests, the infrastructure is there to record arrests a lot more easily. Yeah, you know I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. In both yeah. situations, yeah. You're, you're, it's, it's an it's a interaction with the public. Um, yeah. And it has an outcome. What, what was the outcome? Okay, we had an arrest here. On the other side of this, what was the outcome? You know, this situation um, was de-escalated um, or... Um, there was a, an issue with domestic violence that has yeah. now been um, that has now been intervened. You see what I mean? Maybe you yeah, know. No, totally, totally. Right, I agree with you. I agree. The reason you. we don't have the right way to kind of um, dis- mm. describe or, or um, what's the word um, to measure it is because it's just something that is still relatively alien to us, and this is sort of what sort of um, leads into the discussion about you know reforming the police or defunding the police mm. or abolishing mm. um, mm, mm, mm. how policing is done. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, there there are nuances to it, but the overall principle, I agree with you. When we talk about domestic abuse or domestic violence, we have to record those anyway. But actually, what you're saying is the focus in terms of recording performance should not just be arrests, stop and searches. And I think that that focus... So I think there's two aspects to it. So I think that the level of scrutiny that is applied to the police, particularly in relation to crime and 
how the police perceive the levers to influence the level of crime, i.e. arresting people, um, stopping and searching people, uh, has an effect on that. So it's like, so in basic terms, uh, we have a, a spike of criminal activity in an area, right, we're going to go and increase patrols in that area, the hope of arresting more people for various crime, and with that will come more stop and search. I question that policy, um, and there's bodies of research about what is effective in reducing crime um, that, that mean that for me, simply being present in an area has a crime deterrent effect. So the question for me is, well, stop and search is so contentious. Should we be pushing stop and search as hard as we are or should we just be, should we just be present um, given that it causes so much uh, discontent within our communities? Um, and then to, to touch, so basically I'm saying I agree with you. I absolutely agree with the principle of what you're saying, which is we should change our focus or, and we should, we should consider other ways of measuring police effectiveness. But, uh, yeah, absolutely agree with you. In terms of defund, uh, reform, abolish the police, I think that's a helpful conversation as well. And I know that's gaining traction mm. in the United Kingdom. I think it's a really important conversation because the police have not always existed. So for me, it's about reassessing what we mean when we talk about policing by consent. So this is this is the key difference between the UK and the United States. And it's important that anyone that engages in this conversation understands that the police in the United Kingdom um, conceptually believe that policing is done by consent. So really, for me, the effective challenging of police's position in the UK is actually saying are you really policing by consent? You say you are, but are you really? That is that for me is the effective way to have that conversation, um, and acknowledging the difference between UK and America, being that America is much more militarized, and that Great Britain we we're supposed to use the principle of last resort when it comes to the use of force. So understanding that framework. And then saying, this is what you say you're doing, policing people, police officers. Is that actually what you're doing? Here are the figures. You know, do, do you see what I'm, I'm, I'm getting Absolutely. at? Uh, yeah. 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 I think is, I think when we look at reimagining systems, a lot of people get really stuck because we are so ingrained and it's so embedded in us that this is just the way that things are, right? Like we just mm. have these things, like we just have mm. the police, we just have the NHS. Like these are things that just fundamentally sit with us as a fabric of the society that we now know and we understand. Mm. Um, mm. It becomes really hard to conceptualize a, a new framework for that. Mm. Um, mm. But now we're mm. at a stage where it's been interesting even the last few months, this it's felt like a social experiment that would never have happened at any other time than during a global mm. pandemic, right? Mm. Even we were saying at the start of this call, um, I never used to have so many meetings in a day because no one could fit in the time, <laughs> right? Mm. But now we've reimagined a new world in which actually we can be on Zoom, um, actually mm. can work from home. Actually all of these things that before seemed impossible now are, mm. um, which seems to me, 
with that having been proven to some degree to work, um, that we can reimagine a system of the world mm. functioning, perhaps it's time that we, we reimagined this internal system such as a police force as to what what could they look like if we were mm. to refund. I mean, someone mentioned, do we need to defund the police as in take their money away or do we need mm-hmm. to allocate their funding to do something mm-hmm. different? Um, do you have any thoughts around that? Yeah, so... Um... As I said, I think the whole conversation is really important. Um, I think defunding the police, personally, I would hesitate to reduce police funding because it's been cut already and now we're trying to bring funding back to a particular place. But actually, I would say that this is a an, an evolution of a debate that was raised by police officers some years ago which is the idea that police officers or policing has been asked to step into arenas that it shouldn't be stepping into because of cuts to other services. The austerity measures that have reduced youth services, that have reduced mental health services, um, that means that particularly mental health, where it could be as much as half of requests for service for the police are related to someone in a mental health crisis are the police best place to respond to that so the police will respond because the police always respond (coughs) but um the question is are the police best place for that um then we've got other threats so i work within as i said non-slavery child exploitation um which you know focused on organized crime focused on the trafficking of human beings, focused on also uh, exploitation, recruitment into criminal activity of young people. Are there enough resources, in my opinion? No. Um, So when we say defund the police, I'm hesitant to support that. What I do support is the question mark over what funding should be allocated for what. And what are the policies that should be enacted? So I do question the policy, and it's a government policy, the policy that our primary response to serious violence is stop and search. I absolutely question that. And I do not think personally that is an effective response. And the thing, but but I would say the thing for police, it's a bit like the army as in we're directed by the government. Mm. So the government has said, this is our policy. Now go and do it. So what I would say is in these conversations, a lot of this needs to be targeted to government to say, what, how are you, what are you directing the police to do? How are you directing police priorities? Mm. Um, and so when the government has a specific policy, the police respond. If there was no coronavirus law, the police wouldn't have been trying to enforce it. Mm. So I think understanding the interplay between government and policing and recognise that, <coughs> excuse me, the police have operational independence as in, oh dear, <coughs> excuse me. All right, man. <laughs> the police um, have operational independence in that the government or politicians cannot tell police directly what to do, but they can indicate what their priorities are. So I would suggest that people should lobby the government in order to change policing priorities if they don't feel the police are doing the right thing. And I personally do not feel that 
uh, ex- uh, lots of stock research is a good response. Wicked. Um, Patrick, you had a question, didn't you? Sorry, I was on mute. Um, yeah, I just had uh, one more question f- for Hank, really. Um, it's just about um, centred on y- you yourself as a, as a black police officer. Um, mm. What what do you see as the future of the police and where do you see yourself in that future? Um, mm. Yeah, uh, I think that's basically that's, what I wanted to know. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a good question. And, you know, this whole period has been a real period of reflection as to what is my what am I doing um real introspection and you know it's been it's been an emotional roller coaster if I'm honest um and I've said it in other interviews two weeks ago I was I broke down in tears because um the conflict internal conflict I felt to see violent protesters assaulting my colleagues uh protesting allegedly for a um something that i really believe in that was really difficult to see um so there's a lot of tension and obviously i would say that that was the absolute minority of protesters pains to emphasize that at every point because some people want to focus on the violent elements but the point is that there were people there who under the banner of black lives matter were assaulting police officers and there were other people in support of that and that's really hard for me to see and that's hard for me to condone and i i wouldn't condone that um so how in terms of my position um i recognize that as a black person i have a unique perspective sort of seeing into both camps and being a sort of bridge um sort of bridge between the two worlds and i see that i am more and more perhaps because of the way i talk about these things and and you know the position i've come to can be one of these people that can help move things forward for the better um so for myself personally, I, I'm resolved that I will remain a police officer, even though it's difficult. Um, it's always been difficult to be a black police officer. Um, if I would say that I think black people need to support black police officers a bit more because the whole narrative of being a sellout, being a traitor, not valuing black police officers is harmful. I think there need to be more black police officers. I think we need to encourage people to to join the police. Um, And it's difficult because the police are, yeah, got a long way to go. Mm. Absolute long way to go. But um, if I'm honest, I don't think the police are going to be abolished Mm. um, because I think whatever is replaced will be another form of police. Whatever, Whatever comes in place of the current police will be another form of police. So what we need to do is reform drastically reform Mm. and part of that is proportional representation but I also like what Akala says when he talks about black faces in high places and I take that particularly to heart when I reflect on myself and the idea that being a black person in a particular position isn't necessarily helpful Mm. Um, and actually you need to be a moral person who makes moral decisions so that is that is my reflection on myself to always make moral decisions fair decisions challenge the people that work that i work with 
that work for me. What are our decision? What is our decision making? What are you doing? And I've had conversations with my teams, and it's been difficult. And I've said, you know, we're police officers. Black Lives Matter. What does this mean for us? And what I would say is that there is genuine sorrow amongst many police officers. And I think this might address one of the questions. <coughs> and I think it's reflected across the country. So the fact that the statue in Bristol was pulled down by a lot of white people, white people who have had their eyes opened to see the unequal system, they genuinely thought that our country is fair. They genuinely thought that when people were talking about racism, they were as as the, the, the terminology goes, pulling the race card. Mm. And now to discover that actually these people had a point all along has been incredibly painful. Many senior officers I've heard talking this have said we they feel ashamed of the position where policing is in. Um and they want to change things. Now people with more service have said to me, hey, this happened after McPherson. Um so we're we're covering old ground. So uh, I, I I don't know. It's difficult. All I know is for myself, I have to remain where I am and do everything I absolutely can to push things forward, whether that's professionally. So I'm in charge of various prot- protocols, processes. I'm one of the experts when it comes to the criminal exploitation of young people. That disproportionately affects black people in London. So I am pushing particular responses all the time. One of the responses is I always say, if you're coming across a young person who's in possession of a lot of drugs, should we be arresting that person or should we be trying to find out who is giving them those drugs? So I am pushing personally different ways of thinking and trying to address the system, you know, piece by piece, bite size by bite size. But I think I really think that we need to support more people to join the police because we have to reform it and it, it's going to take a, the, the courage of a few to join an institution such as this mm. um, and actually get to grips with it. Yeah. I can't see how else we're going to change it, to be honest. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned earlier about direct entry now at more mm. levels, right? And I think that's a re- mm. that's something I, I actually didn't know that. And that's really interesting to hear mm. that perhaps mm. for anyone listening, um, Maybe this is for you, you know, like I really respect the sort of insight you've given us, Hank. During this, mm. I've actually been WhatsApping Patrick. I don't know where Quake mm. has gone, um, but Patrick's been <laughs> crying and Patrick was saying, you know, like we're learning a lot. So thank you for your Good. insight here. I have one final question for you before we yeah. wrap up. Um, we've spoken a lot sort of about, you know, what it's like for you being in the police force and yeah. what that's, how it might have been harder at points. But obviously you do it for a reason, right? Mm. Um, what for you makes a good day in your role? Mm, that's a good question. So I immediately think of going back to um, when I was a uniform sergeant in Southwark. And there was a report of a, a young boy, 10, year, 10 years old. He was black. He'd gone missing. He hadn't returned home after school. And um, as a sergeant, I basically started mustering people to go and search for this boy. Uh, so as time went on, two, three hours passed, couldn't find him. Went to see his parents, absolutely distraught. Um, so it got to the point where we're like, now we're really concerned. Probably four hours, really concerned about this boy. So got on the radio, summoned TSG. So this is the TSG that stops and searches people. Um, right, we need to do a street-by-street search of Peckham to find this boy. 
Um, so they started driving from speed, uh, uh, at speed from Haringey, I think it was, and somewhere else. So they're quite some distance away, but they drive at speed on their blue lights, get to Southwark and start our street by street search. And then we find the boy and basically what had happened is he'd gone to his friend's house and um, <laughs> he'd, he'd lost track of time. And then his friend's older brother was eventually like, hang on a minute, like, shouldn't you be going home? So he started bringing him home. And when he saw all the police, and I'm talking, there's probably about 50, 60 police officers looking for this young, young lad. And when he sees them, he's realized, oh, sugar. Like, <laughs> so anyway, the point, the, 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 I, I slept so well that night because we took him into the police, you know, the police station, took him to his mum and just her reaction when she saw him, mm. um, she was, she was beside herself, so happy. She's like, thank you so much for finding my son. I mean, all of the efforts we had put in hadn't actually located him and thank God he hadn't come to harm. Mm. But it was just at that moment, it's one of those moments that, you know, I was like, this is why I became a police officer. And there's countless moments like that um, for me. Um, but that one sticks in my mind in particular. Mm. Wow. So, wow. I just, Thank you. Yeah. just before wrapping up, um, I just wanted to say, hey, like, you know, um, I really appreciate you sort of sharing that sort of um, that memorable mm. good day of policing. Mm. Um, mm. And, you know, I can understand, you know, why you went to bed that night with, you know, that level of peace and contentment. Um, mm. I just wonder, um, you know, um, whether because obviously your your heart is to you know serve the community mm. that you know you grew up in, and you, you mm. know you want to make a positive change. And I think mm. you know there there are lots of people out there, um, some of them in the police, um, mm. that you know share that. But for me, because mm. um, you know where you mentioned before um, how you know you don't see any other way positive change other than sort of reforming the police from within and mm. you know I you know I can hear your sort of perspective on that but I just mm. wonder you know again it's like why do we feel that this 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 sort of um, act of serving the community in this way has to be done by something that done by by an institution like like the police because I mean mm. if I was that kid that went missing right and um, who was just at his mm. friend's house and mm -hmm. I'm sort of coming back from my friend's house and then I see like 60 police officers or dozens of police officers all out on the street and then they say, oh, that's the, that's the kid, that's him, that's him. Mm -hmm. Me, I would, you know, I would shit my pants. Like I would... Yeah, yeah, yeah. My heart <laughs> Absolutely. Be, and I think, you know, it, obviously your background and how you were, like what relationship you have with the police growing up will yeah. um, inform that reaction. Um, but yeah. I know from, for me personally, like, um, you know, ever since I was very little, mm. for me, police um, mistreatment and brutality, like even before I was mm. born, it happened to my parents. Um, mm. It's been, mm. it's, been mm. a, it's been a part of my everyday lived experience. And, you know, this is mm. coming from someone who, my uncle was a police officer as well, but mm. that doesn't make mm. my sort of trust of the police and a visceral reaction to the police any, any different. So I just mm. wonder, you know, like just as a final sort of, point to ponder whether you know I, I think it's really honorable um where your heart is and mm. you know how you want to serve the community and the specific kind of policing that you do mm. um you know is 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 something that is needed but mm. i think generally speaking my position on this um, and i've been thinking about this for a few weeks now is mm. you know we really need to look at 
what is nece- what what necessarily needs to be done by an institution like the police and mm. other institutions that can be created um yeah. to to, to to um, serve the community in, in ways that the police are sort of having to do at the moment, but perhaps aren't doing yeah. to the best of their ability. Like in the specific situation that you mentioned, for yeah. me, I, I'd, I'd say like, you know, like a more kind of like neighborhood watch or community grassroots yeah. um, institution yeah, yeah, yeah. that was based yeah. in Peckham. So you don't have to have people come from Haringey and wherever else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They band yeah, together yeah, yeah. as a community to find, find the missing kid, you know? So yeah, yeah, yeah for yeah. me, it's just about, um, yeah, my my argument is that there are other ways that we can serve the community, um, yeah. and probably better ways um, than using the police. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry if that kind of puts a dull note on everything. No, but no, I just had to no, say no, that. no, no. And actually, that's a really good point. I fully agree with you. I guess the reflection on that story is that the police stepped into the gap there because mm. there was a gap mm. and the police investigate missing persons should the police investigate missing persons i would happily pass that over to an agency that is better equipped to do that there are policing powers and and we are investigators i used to run a missing persons unit so i'm quite passionate about missing persons um but yeah if there is a better way to do it absolutely i guess it's my pragmatism that says these are good ideas. How is it actually going to work in real life? Um, so we need to have that conversation. And that's why I think particularly the idea of abolishing the police is useful. I don't think it will ever happen, but it will highlight to some people in the police just how upset people are. If they're talking about we actually don't want a police anymore, that 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 should cause some reflection. So I think the debate is really important. It's really useful. I think we also need to be pragmatic about real outcomes. Mm-hmm. What is this actually going to look like? So you know, someone this this person who who has has lost their child, who are they going to call? Mm-hmm. So if they call nine nine nine, what then happens? If mm-hmm. there is another agency, then perhaps the police can respond. Uh, jointly with that agency or if that grassroots organization exists and the local police are aware of it they can contact them and actually there are organizations like that that exist voluntary organizations that help there's missing persons Mm. charity so we're talking about the sphere of missing persons because that was my example so you're absolutely right in the sense of we need more of a community response we need communities to be galvanized and to look after themselves and um we we also are but i also think we also need police um because we're a state and we we have many communities and then we have conflict within communities how do we resolve that mm. can but a I community think, do it itself yeah but, um, but i think you know a lot of the time when we talk about community we just kind of have this idea that it's you know grassroots is just purely voluntary um, and it's yeah. not fun, fun. But if we had, you know, um, community-based institutions that were funded by the state, but were, yeah. um, but um, the people that had the mandate were the people that belonged to that community. Do you see how yeah. that? I, I think that could be you know, a viable alternative, um, rather yeah. than yeah, yeah, yeah. Ra- rather than the state having the control and say over how the community does those things. 
they are yeah. like semi-autonomous and and yeah. the yeah. reason that you know I feel that that would be more successful is because the people that are affected by those decisions are also the people that are making those decisions because they live in that community. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. But you know what? I think I think that's I think I like that idea. I like that idea. Yeah. Um, how will we do it? I, I suppose is the question. Where, how do we move that forward? How do we move that conversation forward? Um, that that I think is the challenge because I think you've got a good point there cool cool and on that right i really just want to say thank you so much henk man thank you for your time um, no and for me this has been really insightful i've actually learned a lot like throughout this um it's, yeah. it's very rare we even managed to record for this long this is probably the longest episode we've ever done which just <laughs> says a lot about just how much richness there is in this conversation and also mm. just i think how much more time needs to be given to be having this conversation, right? Mm. You will sit at a very particular experience as you talked about, you know, being a black man from South London, now mm. in Cambridge doing an MA, still working for the police, but looking at this stuff, being a detective, all mm. of that stuff coming together gives you such an interesting perspective of the world, which I really, really value. And I want to just say mm. thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for what you continue to do. And also what you said there about, holding your colleagues and your teams to account. I think that goes across sectors. That's not a police specific problem. It's something we all need to do. Hold our politicians to account, hold our friends, mm -hmm. hold our family, hold our teams. Because it is possible from my perspective yeah. to reimagine systems and redesign our way out of these things. Um, yeah. One of the things that I talk about in my line of work is how oppression and inequality is actually designed into the fabric of the world, right? It's designed yeah. in legislature, it's upheld by the ideas, etc. But if something yeah. can be designed, I really do believe that we can redesign that, right? Um, yeah. We can redesign that in the systems, we can redesign that as you guys were just talking about in what would it look like if we were to reimagine another arm to the police or another way of allocating their funding, um, yeah. On that note, I really just want to wrap up and just say to our listeners, if you have further questions, man, please do get in touch with us. Or, Henk, do you want people to know who you are and contact you, if anything? Or uh, I think the best way is if, if we do it for, you, for yourself. Yeah. And then I can we... just fire, fire, you know, Absolutely. respond as I can. Um, yeah. I think that'll be the best way. Well, thank Amazing. you for having me. It's been a really good conversation. Thank you. No, thank you for coming. Thank on. you, Hank. Oh, Pat, we all here. Yeah, I'm about. I'm about. <laughs> I thought, do you know, I thought I need to drop a little disclaimer, but um, the reason I wasn't speaking, I have been present. Um, I've just been learning so much from what Hank has been saying. Excuse me. And um, I think based on the questions that have been asked by uh, Bilal, Patrick, and obviously our listeners, um, I just, I just was just kind of taking everything in, and there wasn't much more for me to add as far as questions. So. Um, super super like productive talk and I think coming from a background where I've kind of had I've grown up with quite a distrust of the police just through my own personal experiences and experiences mm. of people around me I grew up in Peckham so like um mm. particularly like I'm so used to like the, I've been stopped and searched multiple times similarly with my brother mm. and that's mm. why I was my, my I was really like um my heart was warmed by that um example you gave of all those resources that were um, taken in order to find that missing child because I've had like mm. experiences on the opposite end where my mm. brother was missing and we've had police come over and then literally they looked, they looked in our cupboards and looked around the house and then kind of disappeared and we didn't hear from them again. So mm -hmm. um, I've had 
I've had so many examples on the opposite end of it, but mm. hearing that you as an individual um, have been able to affect actual change within um, you know, the area that you work in is quite, um, it can increase my confidence that it is something that can be affected, even if it's on um, a kind of micro level on an ad hoc basis yeah. that you can have that, that positive effect. Um, mm. So no, super super grateful to to you know to kind of like listening to that that conversation mm. and appreciate mm. you joining us. Mm. Thank yeah, thanks, Frank. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no worries. On that, all that's left to be said is to our listeners: um, you can always get in touch with us at OTB Podcast UK on the socials, which are Instagram and Twitter. You can email us as well: OTB Podcast UK at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought of this episode. Let us know if you have any more questions, and we'll definitely try our best to forward them through to Hank and get an answer for you on our socials. Um, have a great rest of your week, day, year, well, I don't know, whatever. Um, enjoy your Father's Day once again. Shout out to all the fathers out there. Thank you for listening. We've been Over the Bridge Podcast and we love to hear from you again. Keep in touch. See you later. <laughs>